Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. I have, I, you know, my kids tell jokes. Like, uh, how do you catch a squirrel? I don't know. Uh, you climb in a tree and act like a nut. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from pop star Beck Hansen. You probably just call him Beck. Yeah. That will help break the ice. He has a new album of sheet music out. And that's no joke. No, it's not. We will be speaking to him about it later. Also coming up, Darlene Love, singer of one of the great holiday hits, lists some non-annoying Christmas tunes. We learn the history of Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes. And Jesse Tyler Ferguson from the sitcom Modern Family is here with etiquette tips. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Ravi Shankar has died at age 92. North Korea launched a long-range missile, its first successful attempt in five tries. Steven Spielberg's Lincoln led the way with seven nominations for the 2013 Golden Globes. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with our friend Rehan Harmansi. She is now deputy editor at Modern Farmer, a soon-to-be-published food magazine and website. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? A blog post from my new favorite blog, um, uh, the Conversant Economist. Oh, yeah. Um, Everybody's. Oh, yeah. It is about a newly published paper comparing paper towels versus air dryers in public bathrooms. Ooh, and, I like this topic. Yeah, paper towels totally beat air dryers. Yes! In what way? <laughs> in noiselessness? Um, well, yes. They did talk about the noise pollution caused by jet dryers and normal air dryers. Okay. Um, uh, guys, I have to Minneapolis... Yes has a beautiful library. It's really well designed, but they have dryers in the bathrooms that are so loud, it sounds like a runway in the <laughs> library. It doesn't well, make sure. any sense. It's the worst. They're the worst. It's the worst. Okay. They're the worst. How else are they bad? Um, so basically, they're less hygienic because apparently a big part of the hygiene process involves the friction of the paper drying your hands. Oh, getting them, get um, the bacteria off. Yeah. Otherwise, you stick them in the dryer and the bacteria just kind of flies everywhere. Blow around like a tornado of bacteria. Everybody yes. else gets bacteria. Um, also, so the big question, though, is like the environmental effects, yes. you know, and so they scored this on 11 indicators. It was almost a tie. The air dryers came out slightly ahead, but only slightly. Paper towels did better on such categories as carcinogens, climate change, radiation. There, there's radiation um, coming out of air dryers? But More little, than the paper towels. I think they were drying their hands in a microwave. Yeah, so you just don't you don't need to feel that bad about loving paper towels. And actually, in a 2009 survey, 55% of Americans liked paper towels best anyways. Yeah. So. But here's the one thing I'll say about air dryers. You know someone's washed their hands when you hear the air dryer. Mm. Paper towels, people can fake it. <laughs> well, you can just turn on the air dryer and not use it, though. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Rayhan Harmansi, thanks for the small talk and that tip. <laughs> No problem. Thank you, guys. And now it's time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a cloud that rains down booze. Wow. Yes. Not great for droughts, but nice for farmers, I guess. Indeed. First, the history. This week, back in 1939, the epic Civil War film Gone with the Wind premiered. And the festivities were almost as epic. Michelle Philippi tells the story. The biggest hit in movie history also had the biggest premiere. To understand why, you first got to understand just how big a deal Gone with the Wind was. The book had won the Pulitzer. 
producer David O. Selznick had shelled out a record 50 grand for the film rights. The movie starred the biggest names in Hollywood, and it had taken years to get it to the screen. Anticipation was so high that at the first sneak preview, when people realized what they were about to see, they literally stood on their seats and cheered. So when Selznick decided the official world premiere would be in Atlanta, Georgia pulled out all the stops. The governor declared a state holiday to be preceded by three days of Gone with the Wind events, including a parade of the film's stars that drew a crowd of over 150,000 people. Gala days in Dixie. Southern hospitalities at fever pitch as distinguished visitors arrive, headed by producer David Selznick and screen stars Olivia de Havilland and Vivian Lee. President Jimmy Carter later called it, quote, the biggest event to happen in the South in my lifetime. And he wasn't the only famous Georgian to experience it. The night before the premiere was a gala costume ball. Among the performers, a gospel choir featuring nine-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. But the screening was hardly a milestone in civil rights. Atlanta was still racially segregated. So in a moment of irony, even Hollywood would have had a hard time dreaming up. The film's black stars weren't allowed to attend the premiere of a film about the war over slavery. Actress Hattie McDaniel's photo didn't even appear in the program. The event was a giant success anyway, and so was the movie. Adjusted for inflation, it's earned over $1.6 billion. McDaniel, meanwhile, went on to win an Oscar at the Academy Awards that year, the first African-American ever to do so. At that star-studded gala, she did sit in the audience. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm speaking with Stuart White. He is resident mixologist at the wonderful restaurant Miller Union in Atlanta, Georgia. And Stuart, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this, being that you are a bartender in Atlanta, but you already had a Gone with the Wind-themed cocktail on hand? Indeed, I did. The drink was inspired by a, a grave at Atlanta's historic Oakland Cemetery, the grave of a Civil War surgeon, a Frenchman named Dr. Noel de Albigny, okay. who served the Confederacy during the Civil War. And what did he do? Uh, in fact, Dr. Albigny prevented Sherman's troops from burning down the Atlanta Medical Training Hospital, which is now our Emory University Hospital. Oh, man. So he's a, he's a hero. He, he actually did it with some panache. He uh, <laughs> took his helpers and got them soused on some liquor, dressed them up as patients, and laid them down in bed. So when Sherman's troops came in to burn the building down, he ran out and... Uh, cursed at them and implored them not to do it. He said there are patients here. Yes, they weren't actually patients. They were just <laughs> drunk assistants. But That is genius. So you, so this drink is sort of in honor of him. Yeah, the drink is called the French Connection. Of course. I used French cognac that we've added some cinnamon, nutmeg, and clove to, along with a tart cherry liqueur and some fresh ginger with good quality French champagne. Wonderful. That was a, a French drink was the last thing I thought you would come up with for a Civil yeah. War themed cocktail, but you've made it make sense, which is genius. I was yeah. I was kind of thinking that you might, you know, somehow take a Manhattan and like a mint julep and bring them together so you'd kind yeah. of have the United America in a glass. But bringing yeah. France and America together is equally difficult. So, yeah. congrats. 
And Brendan, one last gum with the wind factoid. Okay. So the last line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Of course. Normally, damn would have been forbidden by censors. Oh. But the movie was such a big deal, right before it came out, they changed the rules to allow damn to be said in historical movies. Wow. That was a caveat. Man, we got to get so big that we can finally say you on public radio. It is a goal. Uh, folks, I, I think our drink recipes are FCC compliant. They are at dinnerpartydownload.org. Yeah, they are. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is soul singer Darlene Love. In 1962, her song He's a Rebel topped the charts, but she's also known for this Phil Spector-produced classic. Here's Darlene with a list of other holiday songs you might actually want to hear. Hello, I'm Darlene Love. There's quite a few Christmas songs that I feel, they might be to somebody, but I feel that uh, they're not overplayed. Now here's my list of three songs that I think will make you enjoy Christmas songs again. One of my first picks is a song called Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. And the version that I love is by Israel Horton. He recorded an unbelievable version. Matter of fact, we kind of stole his arrangement. You know, we had to condense it because he does like maybe like a 10 minute version of it. But it was so great. I told my uh, conductor, listen, listen to this song and give us a condensed version of it. Back in the day when they were doing Christmas songs before Phil Spector, it wasn't a whole lot of music in the background. It was like the, the main singer, guitar and a piano. And you know, this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is so unbelievable. I had to listen to it four or five times ago. Did he really do that? You know, it's a big uh, instrumental right in the middle of the song that you don't get tired of. You want to push the button, pause it, and push it back, you know, so you can get to that part again. Because you can dance to these, you know, you can dance to Christmas songs, too. They make, they'll feel good songs. Uh, and my second song is The Bells of St. Mary by Bing Crosby. It is actually one of those kind of songs that you can sit back and sit down with a glass of wine with your family, you know, and put this record on. The bells of St. Mary I hear they are calling You know, there's so, uh, so many versions of this. The guy that sings it usually sings it with a very high tenor voice, the bells of St. Mary, I hear they are calling. Now, I pitched it too high, because I'm not a tenor, but I actually love Bing Crosby's. It's such a beautiful song. I call it one of the Christmas lullabies. The love bells shall ring out, ring out for you. You know, my third song, I really don't have to really think hard about it because it's like a, 
a number one and a number three. It's called Joy to the World by Whitney Houston. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. She called me her godmother, and I called her my godchild. I stayed at her house with Sissy, her mom. We were both working for Dionne Warwick at the time. And when we'd go back to New Jersey, we had a break. I'd stayed at Sissy's house. Nippy was only like seven or eight years old when I first met her. That was her nickname. That's what everybody called her. Anytime you hear somebody call her Nippy, you know they've known her since she was a little bitty kid. I can see her actually on the stage, actually singing these songs, and it takes me back. You know, I get this little lump in my throat now, but still I can see her. Her spirit is here. It will always remain, you know, because she was a force to be reckoned with. I think God makes one of those every now and then. She's one of them. (laughs) The guest list from Darlene Love she hosts her annual Christmas show at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center on December 22nd. Also of note, Darlene was inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame last year, mm. along with the likes of Tom Waits and Dr. John. None of whom could have hit that tenor note Darlene was going for. <laughs> that is definitely true. <laughs> Folks, coming up, Beck, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and more when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, Jesse Tyler Ferguson from the hit sitcom Modern Family answers your etiquette questions. Yeah. And in a few minutes, we learn about culinary plagiarism. But first, time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it is Beck Hansen. Back in 1994, his single Loser became an unintended Gen X anthem. Since then, four of his 12 albums have gone platinum. He has scored hits with everything from funk rock tunes to folk ballads. His new album, Song Reader, came out this week, and it is not an album at all in the modern sense of the word. It is a beautifully packaged portfolio of 20 new Beck tunes in sheet music form. A couple of days back, I talked to him about it. And Beck, welcome. Thank you. In the preface for this collection of sheet music, you say that you were inspired by seeing some of your produced music transcribed into notation by a music publisher. And you write that looking at the notation made you realize the songs, quote, weren't intended to work that way. Yeah, to put it mildly. What do you mean? What did they look like on the page? Well, you know, like a lot of modern music is meant to be a sonic, you know, a collection of sonic ideas. But as traditional songs, you know, the kind of song that you can play around a campfire or or your piano. Yeah, two turntables and a microphone isn't one of them. That one actually could work a little bit. But there were other songs on the record that really didn't work, you know, like maybe where the the main instrument in the chorus of the song was feedback or me howling (laughs) through a distortion pedal or something. How was that notated on the the page, feedback? Uh, I remember very awkwardly. So uh, I felt like it was sort of a shame to sell this book to people that that didn't really make sense. It was yeah. sort of an abstraction of the original recordings. So how are the songs you wrote for this project different than, like, what did you change in your songwriting to accommodate? I mean, I didn't change a lot. I I did 
take license to write in different styles and verge over to kind of standard songbook tradition territory that I wouldn't on my, one of my records. Did, did you actually imagine people sort of singing these around a campfire literally? I mean, some of them definitely have that flavor. That was the, the thing that I, that I looked to when I was writing the songs, kind of the blueprint of what I thought the song should try to at least be. These Now, they've never been recorded. Have you played them live? You know, I hadn't. Uh, the other night I played at a Benefit concert, and I played one of the songs for the first time. Now, that's interesting to me. Doesn't that mess with kind of one of the ideas of this project, which is that the songs would require your audience to bring them to life? Like, shouldn't you refrain? Yeah, but I figured the book had come out, so now it's just sort of open to everybody. You can interpret them now as well. Yeah, I can play them. But I think, uh, you know, I'm going to stay away from most of the songs for a while, sort of see what people come up with. Well, this is, uh, you know, some of these songs, have been released in advance and already there are versions of these tunes making their way onto the internet. People are posting their versions on YouTube. I wanted to play a couple and just ask you some questions about them. Okay. Uh, this is an L.A. band called Doozy and they are doing your song, Do We. Do we Really beautiful. Here, now here is the same song by a band called Automatic Toys. A totally different universe. And hmm. I, I'm sure it's delightful to hear these interpretations, but I want to know how they compare to what you had in your head. Like, have you heard a version of this yet that matches what you imagine? Well, no, none of those are quite like what I what I did, but the beauty of it, it's like a game of musical telephone. Yeah, oh, yeah. The songs kind of change, and, you know, that's the part that's interesting to of me. Of course, but is there a frustration, too? In some way, are you waiting for somebody to nail it? Not really. I mean, if anything, when we were coming up with the arrangements for the record, how to present this to people, it was like, how do we make the song as simple and almost stylistically transparent as possible? Like, how do you give them an idea of what the song is without putting too much of a stamp on it. I mean, if you think of all the modern classic songs, there are there's always a definitive version of a song. Whereas in a folk tradition, there were no recorded definitive versions. So the songs had this way of becoming very personalized and they would change over the years and then they become these sort of strange accretion of mm. all the people who've played it over the decades and centuries. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was just interested in what that could be. What it would end up mutating into. Yeah, I mean, it takes on something very uh, individual and, you know, I guess American. Do you think that's unique to this country? I, I, it, well, just, just that American folk tradition, you know, which is the one we know. It's Americans passing the songs around so they take on a, an American flavor. I'm not really versed in the, the Swedish folk tradition. <laughs> Although I'm sure it's rich and with yodeling. <laughs> and, the, and the like. I would like to yeah. hear almost any of these yodeled. I think you could make a good shanty out of most of these. All right. Let me, we asked two questions of everybody on the show. Okay. The first one is, what question, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, should we not ask you? And I hope I haven't asked it. Not ask? Yes. That's sort of a, a negative space of questions. That's exactly right? true. Inverted. <laughs> Question perhaps you're asked over much or that you don't have an answer for, perhaps. Well, oh, many questions I don't have an answer for. <laughs> um, most questions. What have you been getting most of on this outing for this project? I, I, th I think the thing that people gravitate to is this idea that if you have to play these songs yourself, 
isn't that kind of an exclusionary kind of thing. That That's so interesting. Yeah, in, a, in a weird way, because it excludes people who don't play music. <laughs> that's true. But I mean, it's sort of weird, because on the so, other hand, it's the most inclusionary thing you could do. Includes, yeah. Did you expect that? Criticism? Uh, you know, at, at this point, you know, you kind of expect anything. Kind of, <laughs> You've been you doing this enough. That it's yeah. All, it all just washes over you. Yeah. Questions not to ask, though. I don't, that's a good one. That's a little bit of a puzzle. I guess don't ask me about my six-pack. You know, I'm tired <laughs> of hearing about that. Do you, do you boast a fantastic set of ripped abs? Pretty good, yeah. Yeah, all right. Pretty good. <laughs> I just asked about it because it surprises me, but I shouldn't be. I shouldn't yeah. be. It's it's more of a one-pack. One <laughs> yeah. It's like a piece of slate. Yes. All right, here's our second question. Tell us something we don't know, and this can be about anything. Something that people don't know about me. It could be about you um, or about anything in the world, honestly. It could be a piece of trivia. Oh, okay, like... Well, well, something that, that was interesting that I stumbled on in this project was that Bing Crosby had released a, a hit in the 1930s, and it was so popular it sold 54 million pieces of sheet music. Wow. Now, at that point in the country, I think it was about 120, 130 million people in the country. So if you roll out children and elderlies, <laughs> everybody, it's pretty much every adult. It boggled my mind trying to imagine what kind of convergence that must have been. I mean, people walking up and down the streets, <laughs> hearing that song playing out of everybody's tenement apartment. Constantly. Every house in the suburbs. It was like the soundtrack to everything. And Brendan, one of the only downsides of Song Reader okay. is that you cannot see it on the radio. That is true. A, a dozen designers did the graphics for all these pieces of sheet music. It is a beautiful thing to behold. That's true, but here's a cool thing. Right. These will be among the easiest songs ever to remix. Uh, you just have really? to like you just have to throw it down the stairs and then you pick it up and you have a whole different song. <laughs> it's physically easier. <laughs> Author John Brandon's novel Citrus County was one of the most acclaimed books of 2010. Earlier this year, he released a new one called A Million Heavens. The New York Times called it, quote, wondrous. And when we first aired him reading this excerpt from it, our listeners agreed. Here it is again by popular demand. My name is John Brandon. My book follows a whole bunch of folks around the desert of New Mexico. And one of the characters is a wolf. He's been having problems with his instincts. Uh, he's been losing them and they're being replaced by intelligence, which is bad for him. He's also been confused about why he is attracted to human music. These things are starting to come to a head a little bit. It was daytime, but the moon was out, a tarnished coin in the ozone. The wolf had given up his rounds. His territory was all he had, and he'd been patrolling it since before he could remember, and he'd forsaken it and wanted nothing more to do with Albuquerque. He haunted the basin now, a lost land that would offer a lost animal no aid, a land where the dunes shifted overnight and scorpions feared their own stinging tails. The wolf frequented Old Rattlesnake Park, an area that didn't seem owned by any particular human, a place marked off with no trespassing signs that had been posted by trespassers. Closer to Loft, there was a copse of doomed pine trees on a defunct golf course, and the wolf used the branchless woods as cover. The days were not bright and the nights were not dark. 
The wolf was subsisting on nothing but butterflies, snapped from the wind and swallowed in fluttery gulps. There was no reason for the wolf to do rounds. No animal could encroach upon the wolf, and if the humans encroached, which they had and would and did, it was temporary. Their empires fell, their great cities burned and blew away like cigarette ash. Everyone who lived in Loft lived on the edge of Loft. One house had a backyard full of chickens, and the wolf found himself gazing down at the penned birds from his perch on a hard hill that seemed high in the daytime, but at night seemed so far from the stars. The chickens were kept in a fence meant to thwart coyotes. The wolf should have slipped down and plucked a few, but he didn't want them to be gone. The chickens were unwittingly keeping him company, and in a way, he was guarding them. The wolf gave up his promontory and eased down the hill toward the house so he could hear the chickens, and so he could frighten them a little, put them on edge for their own good. The wolf saw a window with no blinds toward the front of the house, and he saw the form of the girl inside. He stayed put, and after a short time the wind died out altogether and the wolf heard the strumming. It was a guitar. It stopped, and the wolf stood still until it started again. The wolf heard the girl trying out her voice, reedy and full of an emotion the wolf couldn't grasp. Where I've been lately is no concern of yours. There was never a way to tell, once music began, how long it would last. He was panting and his breath was out of rhythm with the song. Shy and tired -eyed, am I? The wolf got right under the window, pinned between the stucco and a line of tough shrubs. Now he felt this girl's song pressing on him pleasantly from without and within. The girl convinced her voice to rise with purpose and the strumming rose with it. The wolf felt quick and dumb. This music could have been anywhere and he could have been anywhere, but they were both here. The song was going to end, but that didn't matter because whenever it ended would be too soon. If it ended in a human minute, that would be too soon. And if it ended when morning broke, that would be too soon. Author John Brandon, reading from his novel A Million Heavens. This music is from Laura Marling, and you're listening, maybe through a window, to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Enrico, today we're talking about culinary plagiarism. Yeah, I hate that. When you, uh, when you eat with someone and they order the same thing as you, that is detestable. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure there's no legal term for that, oh, right. but that is detestable. <laughs> I am talking about chefs taking other chefs' ideas without crediting them. That seems lame. Well, some me. think so. Other people don't think so. It's been a big topic in the food world lately, though. Okay. Uh, recently, Mama Fuku's star chef, David Chang, railed against the practice on Twitter. So to find out more, I spoke with Gabe Ula. He wrote an article on the topic for the foodie website Eater. Right. And I first asked him to tell me about the most ripped-off modern dish. It's the gargouillou at Michel Bras restaurant in France, which is basically this really meticulous but also kind of simple plate of the best the garden has to offer. That's what it is in a nutshell. All right, so hearing you describe that dish, basically vegetables on a plate, albeit 
arranged a specific way. I can understand why some people would be like, what are these people talking about? This is food. It's not the Mona Lisa. Did you get any feedback like that when you published this article? Oh, yeah. Like uh, the first comment, actually, was the fashion industry called to say, Welcome to the party. That's right, because in fashion, it's kind of well known that companies steal style ideas from one another. And the parallels are really insane. I mean, it's every time I, I someone presents me with a possible option for how to protect something, you hit a wall. So does a chef have any legal claim when she feels like someone has stolen her intellectual property? To a very small extent, there is. But, you know, you can't copyright the making of a dish, mm-hmm. an ingredient list. Mm. You can copyright maybe the plating of it as an artist could his work. Oh, that's interesting. But that costs a ton of money, and I can't really think that many chefs would go through the trouble or have the money to, like, do that. So there's no legal recourse. So it seems like it's up to the community to please itself. Um, How would they go about doing that? There are a couple of ways. The problem is that there's no set way. Some people do it by listing the name of the chef they're giving an homage to on the menu. Like a footnote? Yeah. Okay. Um, Or in their books, like when they say, you know, this technique comes from this restaurant that I learned in. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, for example, a restaurant in Tokyo. It's called Quintessence. And the chef there worked at a restaurant called Lestrance in Paris. Mm -hmm. And he basically openly says, I follow the style of that restaurant. And he says it right on the website. Hmm. Um, So there are a bunch of different ways, but there isn't sort of a set way. And some chefs say that, you know, you don't have to tell the diner that this dish comes from this restaurant. Well, I want to talk about some of the chefs that don't mind in a minute. But you also talk to a lot of chefs who do mind. There are some chefs like Wiley Dufresne, who, you know, is considered, you know, one of the trailblazers of New York or, or of the world in terms of cooking. And he actually says, you know, I really do wish stuff was protectable. One recipe of his you talk about in your article is his deep-fried hollandaise sauce. Yeah, it's actually a component in his rendition of Eggs Benedict, mm. which is one of his most famous dishes. But see, um, just hearing you say that, though, Eggs Benedict is old as time itself, right? I mean, yeah, but probably traceable, but... But he figured out how to deep-fry hollandaise sauce. <laughs> yes, okay. But I asked him, you know, I've talked to a couple of journalists, and I, I, I told them, a lot of them say, what's the big deal? Originality kind of doesn't exist. Everybody copies from everybody. It's just part of the deal. And right away he said, you know, I didn't invent hollandaise sauce, but I definitely walked it up the road a little bit. And wow. yeah. that, I think, was the point of the the exercise of writing that piece. But although not all chefs care. Yeah. Um, Pete Wells, the current restaurant critic of the New York Times, he used to be the dining editor. He wrote about a dessert he really liked at this new restaurant, Blanca. Mm-hmm. And then someone, I think, on Twitter brought to his attention the fact that a very similar version of that was already being done at a place called Dirt Candy in the mm-hmm. East Village, a vegetarian restaurant. And he basically, fig- you know, he, he talked to Amanda Cohen, the chef at Dirt Candy, and she said, you know, making dishes is a conversation between chefs, and it's kind of just flattering when you see some of that pop up somewhere else. That's pretty magnanimous of her, but so I guess her restaurant's doing well, but not all restaurants do well, so that would be frustrating if Dirt Candy, you know. I mean, I don't know if her restaurant's doing Amazing, but one of the things that came to mind when when I read that is, you know, it makes her look very big. And that could be why a lot of chefs don't, you know, directly call out people. That's interesting. Because it makes you look bigger. You don't want to stoop to the level. So is this happening a lot more? Yeah, I talked to David Chang from Momofuku, and he basically said, you know, back in the day... I mean, he's not even that old, but he's like, it, there was a point where if you really wanted to learn about a restaurant and what they were doing, you either had to work there or you had to eat there a couple of times. Yeah. And that that's a couple of plane flights. So basically the age of the internet and social networking and food photos have made it easier for people to kind of lift ideas. So in your estimation, what's the future for food attribution? Are we going to be seeing more footnotes on menus at restaurants? I certainly hope so. I mean, the response I got to the article was kind of overwhelming. 
And I, and I think that it's going to go in a good direction. Uh, more and more cocktail books are really, really carefully cited. They have bibliographies. Mm. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that in cookbooks. Or if you're a chef cooking food, you can either make really unique, difficult food that's hard to replicate, a la deep-fried hollandaise, or you can cook super basic food that no one has a claim to, like little neck clams and water. <laughs> Basically. That's going to be my restaurant. If you steal that idea, Gabe, we're never talking again. Little neck clams and water. <laughs> Everyone will know. So, Rico, since you can copyright how food is plated, yeah. I have registered peanut butter and jelly sandwiches cut in half. Oh, no. So if you do that now, I get a nickel. <laughs> Brilliant. Good luck enforcing that. That'll be fun. <laughs> uh, folks, coming up, Modern Families, Jesse Tyler Ferguson tells you how to keep your family in line. Just bug the room. Surveillance tips and more Yay. when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, Jesse Tyler Ferguson from the ABC sitcom Modern Family answers your etiquette questions. Mm. And we hear a new song from Destiny's other child, Solange Knowles. But first, it's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us on some dinner party-worthy topic. Yes, and this week the topic is the Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. Our expert is Alan Light. He's just written a new book called The Holier the Broken, Leonard Cohen, Jeff Buckley, and the Unlikely Ascent of Hallelujah. It tracks the history of what many consider to be one of the greatest modern pop songs, before I spoke with Alan, we listened together to a clip of the Leonard Cohen original. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major So that's Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah from his album Various Positions, which came out in 1984. And Alan, I have to say, that song sounds like it came out in 1984. I really dig Cohen, but the song sounds synthy and borderline cheesy. It's kind of hard to believe that it deserved a whole book. Well, it's hard to believe now. It certainly would have been impossible to believe at the time when Leonard Cohen recorded that version that we that we heard and submitted that album to his record company, they wouldn't put the record out. I love the quote that Columbia Records, uh, Yetnikoff, the executive... Walter Yetnikoff, legendary chairman, president, whatever, of Columbia Records, um, he said, Leonard, we know you're great. We just don't know if you're any good, <laughs> uh, which is a great line. The album came out in the States on a little indie label and still nobody noticed this song. So Hallelujah started not just, you know, under the radar, but completely off the radar. But from reading your book, I don't get the feeling that Cohen had big expectations for the song. I mean, he worked hard on it, but uh, it was kind of buried on the record. And when the album didn't do well, he, he didn't seem too upset. First of all, the song has a tortured history before he ever recorded a note of it in different versions of telling the story. Leonard has said that he wrote 70 or 75 or 80 verses to Hallelujah, that it's something he worked on for two, three, four years, and that it was really a song that drove him crazy. He couldn't find the song in it. Someone who found the song was Jeff Buckley. He, along with Leonard Cohen, is on the cover of your book. 
Uh, tell us who Jeff Buckley was and why he's so important to the story of this song. Well, Jeff Buckley uh, is the son of a jazz folk singer from the 60s named Tim Buckley. Jeff had a beautiful, miraculously beautiful voice. It was an, an incredible guitar player and quickly became kind of the hottest property in town. So he recorded one album in his lifetime, finished one album in his lifetime, a record called Grace, which at the very center of that record sits his his own version of Hallelujah. And was it on the it was on the same label? It was on the same label, Columbia Records. Um, and in 1997, Jeff actually went swimming in the Mississippi River in an inlet from the Mississippi River and drowned. And has become one of these, you know, James Dean, yeah. Tupac, whoever your favorite example is of a young, beautiful, all potential kind of an artist snuffed out yeah. before he could even show what he had in him. At which point after Jeff passed, his version of Hallelujah kind of became this real-time epitaph for him. Uh, it became the signature song for his brief career. And let's hear a clip of his version. Well, baby, I've been here before. I've seen this room and I've walked this floor. You know, I used to live alone before I knew you. And I've seen your flag on the marble arch. And love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Hallelujah. So this version is more stripped down. It's more melancholy. It's darker. Yes. Um, and what really happened, I think, is Hallelujah became a much younger man's song. Uh, that when Leonard Cohen sang it, he was 50 years old. Yeah. He was kind of looking back on the disappointments of life, on the pain that he had been dealt, and trying to find, you can still find transcendence and gratitude and yeah. still give thanks for experience, even if it hasn't sure. always worked out. When you hear Jeff Buckley sing it, this is a kid who's learning yeah. that heartbreak, who's living through the pain of, of romance and and really redefined really defined because it wasn't defined before. Yeah. The version that Leonard Cohen had done, nobody knew, nobody had heard, it wasn't a big thing. And so this reinterpretation that Jeff Buckley did started to become the definitive version. And Buckley's version of Hallelujah was really the bridge that kind of brought this song to the world at large, right? I mean, let's talk about where this song is now. There's something like 360 recordings, and that's not even including all the people who've just performed it. A major turning point for the song was when it was used in the soundtrack for Shrek. Why is it so popular? What's this song's secret sauce? The melody of this song is so undeniable and memorable and simple. And the fact that this is a song that can be sung by opera stars and by Willie Nelson, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever your range is, you can find a way to get to this song. And then I think there is this malleability. You can use this in a Jewish service, in a Christian service. You can use this at a wedding or a baby naming, you can use this at a funeral. Yeah. You can find whatever it is that you're, that, you know, that it means to you that you're looking for in this song, and it can go into all of these places. It's clearly a powerful song, although not all covers of this song are equally powerful. For this book, you talked to Bono about his version of the song. So Bono did this version of Hallelujah for a Leonard Cohen tribute record in the 90s, and it's really pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> he does this trip-hop version. So the phone rings, Bono's on the phone and he says, uh, you know, hi Alan, I uh, I forgot, I had forgotten why I said I was going to do this interview and then I remembered that it's because I have to apologize to everybody. 
<laughs> and proceeded to explain, you know, how bad his own version is and why he never should have put it out. We should also point out that Bono calls the original Hallelujah one of the most perfect songs ever written. Um, well, what do you say we go out on Bono's version? Certain way to go out. But it shows what it shows the many things you can do with this one song. I heard there was a secret chord that David played to please the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? So, Rico, Alan's book is filled with a ton of great rock and roll moments. Like? Like the time Bob Dylan asked Cohen how long it took him to write Hallelujah. Yeah. Uh, Cohen said a couple of years. He was too embarrassed to say it took him longer than that. So would I be. Yeah. <laughs> and then crazy. he asked Dylan how long it took him to write I and I, a song off Dylan's album Infidels. All right. And Dylan says 15 minutes. <laughs> there you go. So about as long as Bono took working on this cover of Hallelujah that we're listening to right now. <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure I accept his apology. Yeah. Kitchen chair, she broke your throne, she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah. All right, and now, speaking of apologies and social obligations, it is time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to politely proceed through the world, and we find a person of note, an upstanding person of note, yes. to come by and answer them. Here to do so this week is actor Jesse Tyler Ferguson. He is best known for portraying Mitchell, one half of the gay couple on the ABC sitcom Modern Family. His performance has earned him three consecutive Emmy nominations. Before TV, he worked on and off Broadway and was in everything from Shakespeare to the Tony Award winning the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Jesse, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for using the word portray. <laughs> I was looking for synonyms of performance. Portray. I like portraying things. What, el- what else would be used? Um, doing acting times. <laughs> he does acting times as Mitchell. You get yeah. that a lot, do you? Acty, acty, funny times. Not here on public radio. Yeah, no. this is public radio. I need to use Scrabble words. Portray. Yes. I like it. But you do. You do portray Mitchell. and you know, I embody him. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. It's one of the most popular sitcoms in America. Do you ever get through a day without being called Mitchell? Um, I either get called Mitchell, the gay one, <laughs> or that guy. But never mind that name. guy. Never, well, actually, now I'm starting to get it's Jesse Tyler Ferguson, which is really quite an honor. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Is it? Or is it disconcerting? To, oh, that people know who my name? Yeah, it's like strangers know. At first it was disconcerting, but when I'm presented with the other options, a fictional character, that gay guy, sometimes the redhead one, if those are my options, I'd rather... You'll take Jesse. Yeah, but people call you the gay guy because, of course, you're in a gay couple in the TV show. Yes. You are also openly gay. Right. I'm one, how much responsibility do you feel for that community? Well, none until just now. Oh, man. <laughs> well, let's get it together. No, I can feel the burden <laughs> stooping you over all of a sudden. And I must amend my previous statement. I, I do get called the openly gay guy. Oh, really? It's the oh. openly gay one, not not the fake one, not not the gay for pay one, which is Eric Stone Street. Um, <laughs> oh no, I don't necessarily feel pressure, but at the same time, you know, I can't ignore social ramifications that Mitchell and Cameron have. Mm-hmm. And then specifically for me, you know, I've definitely used the platform that the show has given me to be more philanthropic and things sure. that are really important to me. Um, you have your own yeah, I started organization. a foundation, uh, Tie the Knot. Uh, we partnered up with the Tie Bar, and we're creating these amazing, <laughs> I say amazing because they are, <laughs> okay. bow ties. And then the proceeds for the bow ties are all going toward uh, marriage equality. Wow. So things like that are such an honor that I get to be 
you know, involved in the fashion world, but at the same time give back. The bow tie fashion world. The bow tie fashion world. It's a niche. <laughs> it's a tiny, tiny little market, but I got to hold on it. It's interesting. You know, I, I actually tend to trust people like Orville Redenbacher who wear bow ties. Yes. Uh, which may explain why our audience was so eager to send in some etiquette questions for you to answer. Are you ready for these? Uh, sure. Let, let's get into the nitty gritty of it all. Here we go. Okay. This is from Karen in California. She writes, I hate my roommate slash best friend's new boyfriend. He is over at our apartment constantly and bugs the bejesus out of me, but she is positively smitten with him. My boyfriend and I hardly spend any time together anymore, and it's all because of this annoying interloper. How do I get my friend back without having to hang out with this guy? First of all, that seems like a very, very crowded apartment. That's yeah. true. I feel like, okay, this is my take on the situation. I think... Best friends should not live together. Well, I think it's. I think oh, your roommate okay, should not be your best friend. Space is good for every relationship. So I think they should give each other some space. I think if this guy's not right for the girl, then that space will, as she marinates in this bad relationship, <laughs> she'll realize this she'll is not it. good, and I need my best friend back. But I do think it's. I think no. friends are better when they're not around each other twenty four seven. But what about the idea that, say, your wife or husband is supposed to be also your best friend? You saying that's not the case? I do think spouses are your best friends, but I I think it's 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 another category of best friend. Best friend with benefits. Mm. Best friend with benefits. <laughs> there you go. All right, we have another question. This one comes from Kelly. How do you handle the talkers? Talkers in quotes. I'm referring to those people who, at a party, for instance, embellish the conversation with too many useless details and mostly talk about themselves. I didn't know Kelly knew us. That's interesting. <laughs> Kelly, listen, Kelly, yeah. if you had this situation with me, you could have just told me yeah. we were having a nice mulled wine together, <laughs> Those... and I thought you were interested in my life. Apparently... We're doing this on public radio now in front of everybody. <laughs> we're going to have this conversation, Kelly. Guys, have you ever met any talkers? When I'm at a party, I never hear anyone else. That's weird. I know. I yeah. usually go to those parties that are terribly silent. Yeah. Well, the talkers... They make these amazing little um, business cards. You can find them online, and it's printed with just two words, stop talking. <laughs> I swear to God, they have these. You can buy like a pack of like 50 of them for $10. Yeah. Just have those in your wallet and wow. and say, oh, I, I just want to give you my card. And I think that's the classiest way to tell someone they're being an idiot. <laughs> I actually have like 20 of those because they've been given to me. Oh, <laughs> shoot. I actually have one myself, Maybe you can too. send some to Kelly, man. This yeah. is great. All right. We'll get those to you, Kelly, in a moment. All right. Here's something from Julia in Los Angeles. She writes, I sometimes worry that I over-accessorize, but then I think to myself that it should be a welcome thing in a blah landscape of boring clothes. Am I off base? It, does it say where she lives? Los Angeles, California. Oh. She thinks that the people in Los Angeles are blah? That's apparently wow, so. Wow, she must be like RuPaul. Is this RuPaul? <laughs> because I don't understand what the next level of, I mean, walking down the streets of LA, yeah. you just see people that they could stand to take off a few items of clothing. That's so. what, or maybe she's thinking of like a headdress or something well, like that. That sounds like she's over-accessorizing maybe <laughs> if you're wearing a feathered headdress. They always say, before you leave the house, take one item off. Whoa. Really? And I think that's oh, have you not heard that? That's why I never wear pants to work. Right. A lot of people don't know. <laughs> I that. usually just I'm wearing one sock right now. That's right. Um, I I'm a big obviously as a bow tie connoisseur. I sure, love yeah. accessorizing, but you know you don't want to go overboard. Only wear one bow tie. Don't yeah. wear two. Exactly. Okay. Our next question it comes from Alex. Alex asks. How can you make sure that your parents' sex life is going okay without asking or seeing? Okay. Um, well, so, uh, first of all, I'm glad you're so 
concerned about your parents. Yeah. I, as a kid, tried to stay as blissfully <laughs> ignorant as possible. Yeah. Are you the, That's right. Are you the youngest Could, child, Jesse? I'm the oldest. Oh, so your parents did have sex after you. See, apparently twice. They had sex twice, and I've walked in on things and like it's it, twice. I, 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 I didn't want to see that. But they love know. each other, so that's nice. That's all that matters. Um, well, I don't know how to answer this um, without... <laughs> oh, I have, an, I have a solution. Mm-hmm. Alex says, without asking or seeing, what about an audio recording device? Because oh, you're not man. seeing. Mm-hmm. You're not that's asking. That's a terrible, or... terrible idea. So just put microphones in your parents' bedroom. <laughs> yeah, just bug the room. <laughs> you know the scene in Grizzly Man where uh, Werner Herzog <laughs> yeah. is listening to the audio tape of a, a horrible bear attack? Never listen to yeah. that tape, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> this is like the Werner Herzog version <laughs> of family relationships. How proud of us. That was a great solution, guys. I don't <laughs> all right. think so at all. <laughs> Jesse Tyler Ferguson, thanks so much for uh, telling our audience how to behave. Behave. Jesse Tyler Ferguson. You can watch him on Modern Family every Wednesday night on ABC and in syndication probably forever. (laughs) True. And uh, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, you cannot put off asking us etiquette questions forever. You're not perfect all the time. Please email your queries to our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org and click on the link that says contact. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Next week, we talk to actor Jamie Foxx about his starring role in the new Quentin Tarantino film, Django Unchained. The dinner party's off-the-chain assistant producer is Jackson Musker. Yes, sir. Our off-the-hook interns are Tamika Adams and James Kim. Thanks also to Bill Lance, Chris Peters, Ali Lozoff, and Peter Clowney. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Solange got her start performing with her big sister sister Beyonce and the pop group Destiny's Child. Since then, she's performed solo. Her new album is called True, and it's out on Terrible Records. The new single is the opposite of Terrible, though. It's called Losing You. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Wait, what is that? Oh, I'm monitoring the bug in my parents' bedroom. They're doing fine. <laughs>